Hey everyone, you're now part of the B2B Power Hour and I'm your host, Nicholas Dickett. I'm Morgan Smith. We help sales professionals power up their sales skills from first touch to revenue, one hour at a time. Join us for weekly live shows and interviews with industry experts breaking down what works and what doesn't in the remote sales era. Now, on to today's episode. I'm um, thrilled for this conversation because, not just because of the, the things that we've been chatting about in advance, but also I feel this is a blind spot in some ways for lots of sellers and lots of sales managers when it comes to like practicing properly and what practice means, what it looks like. And y'all have spent a lot of time on this, <laughs> invested a lot of energy into making this happen. And I'm so excited to just like dive in and talk about practice with you both today. Yeah, man, we can talk about this all day. <laughs> It'll be a fun conversation for sure. <laughs> Nick, yeah, where do you want to start, Nick? You know what? Why don't we start with the easy question? Why do most sales orgs not role play? Why do they not make practice part of their daily lives? Why is that? What do you think? So can I jump in with a thought there? Mm-hmm, please. So I would venture to say that quite a number of sales orgs role play the mistake that we often see very, very well-intentioned sales teams and sales leaders making as they role play is that they often mistake role play for game time performance. So what does that mean? It means you're practicing, but like the stakes are kind of high and you're trying to show your manager and the rest of your team how good you are and how smooth you are. So you're not even thinking and you're not even really aware of what you're doing. You're just so nervous and you just want to show everyone that you've got this down. And that becomes a really, really stressful place for a lot of sellers, which turns them off of the idea of role play and practice. And is also so unlike the way any other discipline out there approaches practice, which is that practice is not performance. <laughs> There are totally different rules and totally different outcomes that govern practice. The speed, right? It's much slower usually if you're thinking about a musician or or an athlete than it is in game time. You're able to double back. You're able to make corrections. So the big distinction that we really make between like your typical role play and practice is what kind of awarenesses are we looking sellers to build as they practice? And what are the circumstances? What are the, what are the rules of the game? What's allowed? And I think one of the most important things that's allowed for really good practice is failure. And that's something that we don't often see made room for in typical role play. So I'll, I'll kick that off there, guys. Well said. I think it was Amazon that uh, somebody had wrote a brief that you don't get fired when you make a mistake because their belief is, well, I just invested a million dollars into you to go and understand that, you know, that have that learned experience. Now let's capture it so nobody else has to go and do that again. That one-time investment. Not Why not have that, like you said, non-game time so we can capture those investments and work a little smarter thereafter? One thing that comes up, and, and maybe this is a question for both of your perspectives, like I know we've used the phrase, at least here, I don't know if this is appropriate, but uh, like a sandbox, like having these rules for practice versus performance as you laid out. So what are the fundamental building blocks of that sandbox? What are those rules that we need to construct inside our sales organizations or our sales teams so that practice can actually be valuable? 
I think part of it is that you need to be practicing smaller pieces. That's the other common mistake that we see is when like, when a practice does come up, it's like, okay, everyone like record yourself doing an entire demo. And it's like, okay, well, first off, it's Jordana's point. Typically the mindset in that case isn't practice to improve. It's practice to prove to me you can do it, right? Which doesn't really lead to much improvement. But the other piece is when you're practicing the whole piece at once, you can't really make meaningful observations about specific decisions you made and how you want to make them different. And you certainly don't have time to double back and fix them, right? You just do it once, get this like dump of notes from your manager on what to do better next time. And then you move on with your life and you never actually take the time to implement those suggestions right then and there. So it doesn't really stick. So one thing is to make it smaller, right? Practice a specific moment, how you open the call, how you transition from one feature to the next feature, how you talk about pricing, focus in a specific moment, to Jordana's point, I think the second piece is make sure that it's very clear to everyone. This is a place where you are expected to make mistakes. That's the entire point is to make mistakes. We use this place to find the mistakes, identify them. And then I think the third piece is then go back and fix them right away, right? Don't just have someone do it once, get a list of notes, and then move on. Have them go right back and try it again a little bit differently this time. Yeah, I mean, the other piece, I guess, is just around the kind of like vibe or maybe we can call it like the psychological safety that needs to exist in order for reps to feel comfortable showing up and failing, right? If if their sales leadership hasn't made it a place where you can make mistakes, you can double back and make corrections, it's going to be hard to just enter practice and feel like it's okay to do that. So I often advocate leaders practicing with their reps, actually, rather than just facilitating practice for their reps making inevitable mistakes as well, asking for feedback as a way to signal that this is a place to be vulnerable and a place where it's okay to experiment, try things on, fail, all in service of growth and iteration. The thing that can't escape me, and and I think, Jordana, you had hinted at this or had mentioned this earlier, when I was learning like copywriting and doing headlines, and for example, like to what Jonathan was articulating, writing headlines is a very small task. And the way that I learned to practice writing headlines was you just wrote a lot of headlines and you got immediate feedback and then you wrote more headlines. And you had said like the way that sales or sales organizations train is unlike any other discipline, usually. So what does sales miss about practice? What's the status quo as we've sort of talked a little bit about? And how should these sales organizations be thinking then about practice? Like what can other disciplines teach sales about practicing skills? So I think you know one thing that comes to mind is practice itself is often just a, a missing beat that every other discipline has that, that most sales teams don't have. Like so much sales training, we've all been there, is information coming at us. We are passively opening up our brains and absorbing decks and inspiring keynote speakers and conversations like this and podcasts and LinkedIn posts, right? There's no shortage of information out there, right? But the challenge that every other discipline seems to understand that that sales is starting to get hip to, I think, is that knowledge, knowing something is not the same as being able to do it really effectively. And then there is this practice place that every other discipline knows to utilize in order to translate knowing into doing. So practice itself, though, again, we've talked about, you know, role play happening is, is pretty rarefied, I would say, across the industry. I think that uh, when you think about, you know, what sales is missing with practice is what I see almost entirely ignored is the fact that you don't have to just be purely practicing a sales scenario in a sales context to 
develop the underlying skills that make you better at sales. You can become better at a thing by practicing an adjacent skill. I'll use a sports analogy, right? Of course, you know, if you're a linebacker in the NFL, some of the best practice you get is actual practice and, you know, where you're playing the game, right? Scrimmages, et cetera. However, a lot of linebackers in the NFL will also train in boxing because boxing strengthens the neural connections between the brain and the hands, increases reflexes and accuracy of hand placement, which by the way, is a skill you need in football, but you can grow that skill elsewhere. Take it even further back, a lot of linebackers pick up heavy pieces of metal and set them back down again. They never do that in a football game. I've watched a lot of football games. Nobody picks up heavy pieces of metal and sets them back down again, but they still do that because the underlying muscles being strengthened are the ones they need. So similarly in sales, right? What are the underlying skills you need? Well, you need to have really strong linguistic ability of being able to take an idea and form a sentence out of it. You need to have a lot of curiosity to be able to notice and pick up on things. You need to have a lot of emotional intelligence to recognize and manage your own emotions, but also identify the emotions of others and recognize how you impact them, right? You need to be good at listening. You need to be good at empathy. You need to be good at quick thinking and quick responding. You need to be good at like calming your own emotions and your own fear reactions so that you can think more clearly all of those neurological skills can be grown and developed in other contexts outside of selling. And that's something that I absolutely never see talked about and certainly never implemented on sales teams. Like I would be a big fan of, you know, I don't know if this would be logistically possible or not, but it would be really beneficial if every member of the sales team had their own podcast and hosted their own podcast. Because you guys, I'm sure, have experienced on this show, a lot of the skills you need to be good at interviewing people are a lot of the same skills you need to be good at running a discovery call right? Most folks here probably know Ding Zhang and his, uh, you know, sales rap IO company. I love that because the net mental skills you need to be able to freestyle, not only the linguistic skills of putting together the lyrics, but also like the emotional skills of like trusting yourself, leaning into the uncertainty and doubt and letting your brain think clearly, even in a high stress environment. It's exactly the skills you need to be good on a cold call or to handle an objection. So, that's an element of practice that we've kind of been exploring a lot lately that seems really, really powerful that again, we don't see talk about elsewhere. It's like becoming better at sales by practicing things that aren't sales. So cool. <laughs> it makes me think of like live improv, right? Like how are we staying fresh? How are we, you know, it's really interesting. If we look at the job of a sales professional an executive, what is the difference between them and a lawyer and an accountant? We're doing similar work, similar scope, but they have an apprenticeship. And yet sales is given a quota, a bag, and they said, here's your ramp period. We're not going to teach you about who you're going to talk to. We're going to teach you what everything the product does, and you're going to have to figure out why it's useful. Here you go. And it's just so interesting that we almost sell ourselves short. We really do when we don't prepare ourselves to have that apprenticeship style approach to sales, especially that ramp period. Because I think of some of the managers that have really helped me push through barriers. And it was them taking me under their wing and creating that relationship. And like you guys had said earlier, that psychological safety where it was okay to fail. And so it was okay for me to be honest with them where I needed help. And they are the ones that pushed me to be better because all the other managers forced me to lie. I'm not going to tell them my pipeline sucks because I'll get fired. You know, if you if an accountant or a lawyer said that to their boss, like they needed help, they'd get sent for training, not fired. So it's so interesting that this psychological safety and this apprenticeship exists in all of these professional services, knowledge worker jobs but not for us sellers. The, Michael has a good question to sort of fold this into. Are research and preparation for sales calls adequate practice or is role-playing better for building muscle memory? And maybe we can take that a step further and talk about what other sorts of sandboxes are good for building this, this muscle memory and for building practice. 
Good question. So this preparation piece is certainly important, right? But that definitely, I think, falls in the category of like knowledge, right? Stuffing your brain with knowledge about the company and their goals and the persona you're talking to. Putting knowledge in your brain is always a good thing to do. However, oftentimes there's a really big gap again between your knowledge and what you're able to pull off. So I would say practice is very much necessary. Now, kind of an interesting twist here, you can do some level of practice on your own and that would probably fall into what most people consider preparation. For example, if you're about to open a call and you kind of write out a bit of a script for how you're gonna open it and you practice saying that two or three times to like make sure it's smooth, that's a form of practice, right? If you anticipate some objections your buyer might bring up based on the research you did and you kind of plan a response for what you'd say and you say it to yourself in the mirror a few times to make sure the words come off your tongue smoothly, that is a form of practice and that is valuable. And most folks would consider that preparation. But again, if you're actually speaking those words in advance, that falls in the practice bucket. However, and that's honestly, that's probably the best way to prepare in the moment when it's like, I got 20 minutes before my call. Going and taking an improv class 20 minutes before your call isn't really going to net you great dividends. So that kind of self-rehearsal is probably really effective 20 minutes before a call. But as you look at your sales career, that's not going to get you where you want to be, right? Because again, you need to be better at the quick thinking. You need to be better at the emotional management. You need to be better at reading signals, noticing things. And yeah, to, to Chris Bogue's comment in the comment thread here, improv is an absolutely fantastic way for salespeople to develop most of the skills they need to kill it in sales, you'll find in improv. So that probably is the best thing a salesperson could do is go take an improv class. Yeah, something that comes to mind for me too, you know, I, I know as we're talking about ways to practice some of these softer, less scripted kind of human to human skills, you know, the idea of like starting a podcast feels like a really heavy lift or taking an improv class could feel scary. And, where, you know, where do you find an improv class? But one of the things that we've been really excited to experiment with and kind of bring to life in the practice lab are specific calibrated exercises that we've come up with that are designed to allow sellers to practice some of these softer skills, literally just with a partner. One of them around discovery in helping sellers to tap into the feeling and to grow their awareness of what it feels like to be curious in service of asking better questions. One really powerful and interesting lab that we induced last quarter where we take partners, practice partners, out of the sales conversation, out of the context of a sales role play, and literally just into a real conversation in their own lives around either a change they might want to make in their lives, because of course buying is change, so there's a relationship there, or a purchase that they're thinking about making, right? And first and foremost, we give sellers who are practicing this conversation, who this kind of discovery, the task of like, what are you authentically curious about? What does that feel like in your body and how do you know, right? Because we all know that some of the most effective conversations and questions in sales come from authentic curiosity. And then we ask the partner, how does it feel to be on the other receiving end of the practicer's curiosity. Because one of the interesting things we found, and we didn't know going into this, is that when you feel like someone is curious about you, your resistance goes down, you start to open up, you're willing to disclose more, right? And we're in the business, of course, of, of trying to gather information for our prospects in service of helping them. But often discovery can feel like one big take, right? Where we're just extracting all the information from them in service of selling to them, right? But when we can give them the gift of our curiosity, under Understand what that feels like, that creates a very different experience and discovery. But then what we found is like, okay, curiosity often isn't enough when you're trying to effectively sell because 
it's really helpful to be curious about the right things or the best things, right? And oftentimes sellers get curious at this very surface level around like, how many licenses do you need or when do you want to start? But we know that what is more a more effective place to get curious about is around underlying motivation, impact, all of you know, all of those deeper issues. So what we do is provide folks with a kind of curiosity map to have open while they're having their conversation. Again, not in real time, really slowing down that gives them some suggestions for areas, those deeper level areas that they could start to inquire about. They look at the map, they feel that tickle of curiosity, ask those deeper you know, impact-based questions and get that practice, first be, being curious and then knowing where to take that curiosity in order to get a more thoughtful, deeper conversation. So it sounds like it's come out of like a, the lab of a mad scientist, right? But this curiosity piece is so important. It's something so many people say sellers have to have. And this so far has been our, you know, our best stab approach at helping folks to really practice it. And what's interesting to me about that is, and it sort of folds in nicely with what Jonathan was saying, is that a lot of discovery training is about actual discovery and like doing discovery, the skills and situation of getting on a call with an actual prospect or buyer. And here in this case, it's, well, the skill is actually curiosity. And the skills and situations is training our self-awareness for curiosity, which then leads us into better discovery calls and allows us to navigate discovery better. It's like that, uh, once again, that adjacent skill that helps us accomplish a, a sales task or a sales skill better. I just have to say, I've never heard that before. And I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> Well, it's interesting too, guys, because like there's curiosity, there's the areas of effective questioning, but then there is also the important piece that like how you ask a question really impacts how it lands and how likely our prospects are to further open up. So we do get into the super tactical by helping people in a subsequent lab give form and shape to those curiosity-driven questions in service of them landing more effectively. But again, we're breaking it down. Like questions start with curiosity. Once we're able to tap into that, then we can give them form to make them land better. I was just going to say, Morgan, that um, that particular lab is one I've actually been doing for, for quite a while, even before the practice lab officially existed. And it has had such an impact on my selling, but even outside of selling, just my life in general, like just practice on like better listening and more curiosity. And again, being curious about the right stuff. You know, I spent lots of hours doing that exercise in various different contexts. Now it is pretty second nature to me where I'll just be hanging out at the park with, you know, my, uh, some friends of ours, right? And they'll, they'll mention something like, oh, I'm thinking of going back to school for something. And immediately my head just explodes with curiosity of like, why that discipline? Why now? Who are you doing this for? For you, for your kids? What led to this? What are the barriers in the way from doing this? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next two years? How does this tie into your, you know, greater life's vision? Like, I don't ask all those questions. That would be kind of weird. But like my head just explodes with curiosity now the moment someone says something. And again, it didn't used to be that way. It used to be I just hear it and be like, oh, cool. And that's it. But after doing this exercise over and over again, now it's wired in me. And of course, you know, that comes in quite handy on sales calls, right? When folks are saying things, and again, my curiosity is going off, it tends to help me ask the right questions, even if I haven't, you know, prepared in advance what I'm going to talk about. I've been on many discovery calls with Jonathan. And Jonathan, I have to say your discovery skills blow me away every time. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that um, comes up for me, and this is a, I think this is a phrase that shows up on your website. So forgive me if it's not, but I believe you said something like this before that peers are better practice than your prospects. And 
like sellers shouldn't be practicing on their prospects. Can you say more about that? Because I feel like it's not a hot take, but it's a unique perspective in that a lot of it's sort of what we've previously talked about where here's the fire hose of information in a sales training. Now go try it out. And the way you go try it out is you practice on your prospects. So could you give some more color around like what it means to practice on your peers instead of prospects and why? That piece of copywriting gold came from your mind, Jordana. So I'll let you uh, <laughs> I'll let you expand on that first. <laughs> so first of all, I'll just say like, there's always going to be some level of practicing on your prospects because you can practice, let's say you're in a program like the Practice Lab and you do your practice in lab and then you've got to test it out on the wall. Then you're going to notice just like a real science laboratory that like the conditions in the lab are a little different in the wild, right? So there's inevitably going to be some iteration and, and mistake making even there, right? So I'll, you know, I'll start out by saying that. But I think again, you know, we're one of the only disciplines on the planet where you learn all this information. Let's say you want to learn the the piano or something where you're like told how to do it. And then like your concert is the next day and you've never had the chance to do the scales, right? So the idea of being able, even like, let's say it's a scripted talk track that you're using separate from any of these soft skills, like trying it on for size. Like it's one thing if Charles Malbauer says, fill in the blank discovery question. But if you say it, it might not feel like you, you've got to like smooth it out, make it your own, like work it out. And one of the challenges is that if you just jump from knowing into practicing on your prospects, it's like, that can feel like a very scary thing to do. And one of the reasons that we think, you know, that so much money gets wasted on sales training and behaviors don't really change is that it's a pretty high bar to say to a seller, you've just learned something new, your next call, you've got serious revenue on the line, we're counting on you, try that new thing you've literally never let come out of your mouth on this high stakes interaction with a prospect who you hope will close. I mean, there's a huge like nerve gap there. So I bring this up to say that there are a couple of benefits for like practicing with your peers rather than your prospects. One is like trying it on for size, like making it your own. But then the other, of course, is that through the repetition, you have more skill and then you will be giving yourself emotionally, right, from like the nail-biting experience and your prospects a better experience of being sold to because you've increased your skill through some, some reps and practice. And I'd say, you know, in addition to just how expensive it is to practice on your prospects, right? Because if you blow it, there goes that opportunity. In addition to how expensive it is, the other thing that I see is a very consistent pattern, which is a rep hears about a new technique, behavior, process, et cetera. They say, ooh, that sounds cool. They try it out on a sales call. Since it's the very first time they do it, they bungle it. Since they bungle it, it doesn't really have very good effects. Rep then concludes... Ah, that behavior doesn't work for me. I'll go back to doing what I've always done. And then reps get stuck just always repeating the same stuff because every time they try something new, it doesn't really feel that great. doesn't seem to get better outcomes. So they conclude, it just doesn't work for me. I'm going to keep doing what I've always done. And reps get stuck, right? Repeating the same stuff over and over again, where if you gave yourself half a dozen attempts in practice first, so that when you tried it on for size, you were reasonably competent with it, then you could probably make good determination based on how it worked, if it's a good technique for you or not. But when it's your first time, you can't really make that determination, you know? So true. That's so good. Uh, Nick, there's a question in chat you wanted to grab. Yeah, so Kinder asked a great question. I'm going to change the way that I'm going to say it, but how do you go and help sellers that found a way that used to be really good, that used to be the best practice, that used to blow it, hit it out of the park, but now coming into the new world of sales that we live in, that just isn't performing like it used to, 
how do you help them want to engage in the conversation, in the role play, in the practice to test the waters of something new? One level thought is you could try to open their eyes and say something like, hey, it doesn't matter if you've been doing this for 20 years. Tiger Woods has been golfing for 20 years, but he still practices, right? That's, you know, a pretty solid line of reasoning. Truthfully, though, I don't know if you can make someone want to improve, make someone want to practice, make someone want to open themselves up to the idea that maybe they need to change, maybe they need to learn. Like, I think once you've gotten to that place where you're like, okay, this isn't working, I need to try something new, I need to invest in myself then yeah, practice is a beautiful vehicle for taking you there. But if you're in the mindset where you're like, I don't need to change, I got this. It's just like something else outside my control that's the problem. I don't know if practice can really help you. Yeah, so I don't know if that's a lazy answer, but it sounds like maybe we can't help them if they don't want to be helped. Jordan, what do you think? Well, I think also like one of the things that's been interesting is through, because we started the practice lab, we did two beta cohorts to figure out what the hell we were doing and test the curriculum and make sure that it was as impactful as we hoped and thought it would be. And then it was, and then we had our first, you know, kind of real customers in Q3. But through this process of working with reps, you know, mostly, I guess, in, in B2B, but across a variety of industries, we have identified that there are certain qualities of human that like really get lit up and really see improvement through practice that might be missing in in other variations of human beings. You know, part of it is the recognition that you are very much in progress and you've got something to learn, right? And not everybody is even willing to acknowledge that. And of course, it'd be a great thing if they all did, but in absence of being able to acknowledge that, it's pretty hard to engage someone in the practice environment. The other piece is very much connected to being willing to make mistakes which can be really hard for people. What's nice is that when folks come into the lab and realize it is a place they can make mistakes, it's like a big sigh of relief, right? Because there aren't very many places, especially in sales, you can do that. So that's an important thing. And then the other piece is like a real kind of openness to feedback and the recognition of feedback, both giving and receiving as a kind of gift. And we, we talk about like that gift mentality around feedback a lot in the lab. But if you're not willing to be a great practice partner, bump up against the limitations of your own abilities, fail a little bit, feel a little awkward and stumbly en route to mastery or, or getting better, then practice you know, might not for you right now at this moment in your life until you start to feel more comfortable with those aspects. Such an interesting topic because you know we have SDRs that are early 20s calling on veteran executives that have been doing the same thing for 20, 30 years, and we're telling them to change because simply the best. We are the best. Our product is the best. And so I think about that methodology and like how our brain interprets, it's a challenge. No, like I don't want to change anything. This is comfortable. Like what you guys were saying earlier with practice, like Jonathan, you, you nailed like exactly how I felt whenever somebody's like, oh, try this script. And you're like, ooh, ugh, I don't want to use that script again. I sounded dumb and I got lost and I killed the whole call because I tried something new. But we think about those executives. What does it really take to get them to see something new? Is that why change? Why now? And so I think long before the practice is I would want to know is why do you want them to change? Is it because they're what they determine as good enough isn't good enough for the company? And there's a, you know, there's a gap or is it because you expect more of them? And that might be having that hard conversation of like, you know, where do you want to go? Are you happy with this? And honestly have that, like you guys were saying earlier, like lean into that curiosity of where they are, where are they in their stage of selling their profession? 
It's really interesting because practice I've found to be a really, really powerful tool for teams and sales leaders and like recruiting groups to vet for the kinds of qualities that we're talking about. Like if you front load practice in the interview process, and I've seen this firsthand and I've been through heavily practice-based interview processes, the kind of, I guess, most like enlightened teams, I think, don't use the practice and the role play to see if the new person who's just learned about the product and is interviewing can sell it perfectly. It's not about that. It's like, if you can practice, it shows that you're game to recognize your improv, you're game to take risks, you're game to experiment. You want to ask for feedback and practice itself becomes a really beautiful litmus test for all of those qualities that we all know make for some of the most effective sellers, the most coachable sellers, the best teammates, the best supportive teammates. And when you use practice as like the, the, almost like the gatekeeper for your sales team, you start to find the entire culture of your sales team shifting because all of these people have such an incredible growth mindset. And I will say that that's a, a kind of rare way to approach the hiring process. It certainly has been in the past. So I'm not surprised that there are a lot of people who've been sitting on sales teams for 20, 25 years and who just don't have that mindset. And then the question, I guess, for a leader is, is that okay? Is it okay that we have sellers on the team who aren't looking to grow and develop in this way? And maybe it is and and maybe it isn't. But practice is a great way to find out even before they get in the door. Juicy bit. I know. I was like, ooh, a little spicy this morning. I like it. <laughs> so what, uh, one thing that uh, I can't escape and the way that it's communicated today is it's like vibes. I don't know how else to say this, but it's like the vibe that you both are bringing is creating psychological safety for sellers to practice. And Nick and I've talked about this a lot where I'm not a seller. I had never sold, never had to aside as a freelancer. So the disciplines and professions that I was brought up in, especially in marketing, there's a lot more psychological safety, especially in the creative side, to throw some colors at the wall and see if it sticks. And obviously, most of the time, it doesn't. Like That's the creative process. So, But when it comes to sales teams, there's a lot of, I don't know how else to say, but like problematic approaches to role play, to practice where we, you know, put people in hot seats and we, and as we started off today's live show with like, we expect them to perform instead of expect them to practice. Sandbagging them. It's almost like Halloween or somebody's about to walk out the corner and go, boo. That (laughs) wasn't part of the drill. (laughs) Like what the heck? So for what are some, I don't know, tips, rules of engagement or otherwise that sales leaders especially can use to create psychological safety in their teams? And I'm specifically thinking about like even changing the culture because I expect lots and lots of sales teams have done role play before. So now it's like, how do we communicate that maybe this new thing we're going to try out is different than the previous experience that everybody didn't like or felt, you know, ooh, that was weird. Yeah, I mean, I've been geeking out about the cultural aspect of practice forever, in part because two of the healthiest and thriviest and highest performing teams I ever worked in sales, like practice was an integral part. And I had this aha moment when I was thinking like, what do these two teams have in common? And I was like, oh my God, it's it's freaking practice, you know? And that there's no like set recipe for creating psychological safety on a team. I have found that it really does stem from the top down. You as a leader cannot tell your reps to feel comfortable making mistakes unless you yourself have made them and acknowledge them to your team. And that can be in practice or outside of practice. If you're curious to start to build psychological safety, 
beginning to get a little vulnerable with your team as a leader is a good way to start. And from there, that sends the signal that this is a safe place to be vulnerable, to make mistakes. And then you can start to kind of incorporate these really interesting cultural elements, things like celebration of failure. You know, one of the things that we we talk a lot about in the in the practice lab and the, the program is kind of divided into these three phases of behavioral change, the learn, practice, do. And in the do phase, that's when you're attempting this stuff in the wild, right? Trying to take it from the lab out into the world. And inevitably, like, there's still going to be failure, even if you've gotten in all of your reps. And we really encourage people in the community to, like, share out recordings of their, like, fall flat on your face, embarrassing face palms as you do like the great winds that that close or where you book the meeting, you know, and creating a culture where the leader is vulnerable and just like attempts, like you're celebrating the doing, you're celebrating like the bravery of trying the new thing on for size, irrespective of the outcome can be a really good way to help people start to realize that the process not just like the metrics of closed one really matters. And of course, directly impacts like the eventual metrics too. So those are just some things that sales leaders can do to start to create that feeling of psychological safety. This happens every once in a while where we just have guests where it's like, I want to sit in this stew. It's like a tea. I just want to sit here for a while and just like soak in all this good, juicy wisdom because it's mm, so good. <laughs> there's so much to talk about here. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, like there's a skills development piece, the culture, like the container. It's it's endless. We could have 10 episodes on this and never, never get yeah. through it all. <laughs> I hope we do. Me too. Jonathan? I've noticed too, Jordana covered most of it. The only piece that I might throw in there from my own experience is I've noticed on sales teams I've been on, like you send a really strong signal based on what you take the time to celebrate and even how you talk about it, right? Are you just celebrating the 100K wins and nothing else? Or are you digging into the data and finding a 10K win where like it was so close to being lost, but the seller pulled off a brilliant maneuver and ended up making it work? Like, are you just praising the dollar amount or are you praising the process is a big part of it. And again, are you just praising the wins or are you praising the valiant attempts? Do you praise your team member who tried out a new creative outbound sequence and it totally flopped? Do you take the time to praise them publicly and put a little message in the Slack channel about it? So like the language you use when you talk about successes and what part of the success you highlight is important. And again, what you highlight, whether it's success or failures, I think is really big. I have an experience that ties to that. I actually left a company because I was exceeding quota, but I wasn't hitting activities. And they said that that wasn't acceptable. And this was years ago before, you know, I didn't have a salary. I was just commission only. So I don't know why it mattered, but Then I moved to another company and it was really interesting because I disqualified a deal and the manager got up in the Monday morning meeting and he's like, look at Nick. He had this big deal that he went through, challenged, found out it was a wrong fit and disqualified them within two weeks. Normally we would have spent six months chasing this and he just saved the rest of the six months. Let's give him applause. From that day forward, after the manager did that, it changed everything because not only was I more willing to share with everyone how I disqualified, why I wanted to hear what other people were doing. I wanted to hear like what worked, what didn't work. And then we were even people would actually go and write well before Slack, like they would write emails like, hey, like this is the email I'm, I did. This is a response. This is why it didn't work. Well, this is what I would have done differently. This is how the conversation changed. And it was like my brain instantly just opened. And going back to even like Kinder's point, I was taking care of myself and I only not only cared about myself, but I was worried about my own performance. 
when the manager opened the floodgates, it became a team affair. And that was one of the best teams I have ever worked at. And it was because that manager set that tone from the Monday morning meeting instead of the Monday morning assault. It was a builder, right? And still, I still remember it like it was yesterday. So wait a minute. Did they used to do business before Slack? (laughs) (laughs) How old are you, (laughs) Marcus? I don't even know what that means. Nicholas, though, that's what you just shared is also really powerful because I think that all too often, like the gatekeepers of coaching, the gatekeepers of practice, the gatekeepers of feedback giving are like the managers and everything is very top down. And often when I talk to sales leaders about the idea of creating a culture of practice, it can feel like a really heavy lift because they're like, oh my God, I have to have, like, I have to lead all these trainings and I have to have all of these like practice-based one-on-ones with my reps. Like I, I can barely find time to eat lunch, you know, but this idea of tapping into the collective knowledge of the group and like deputizing sellers who are maybe just a few steps ahead of like the, the latest folks who are onboarding and, you know, helping them to support one another in practice, creating a kind of community where like folks aren't just asking for feedback and call reviews from management, but from each other. That makes the entire exercise such a lighter lift, but it also creates these really thriving cultures where people are open to feedback, excited to empower each other, you know, share what's working and what's not. And then you have like a culture of feedback and practice, which, as you know, you've pointed out, Nicholas, like leads to thrivingness, good vibes, Morgan, and usually, at least in my experience, much higher performance. Ain't that the truth? It's the thing that I can't escape either is both all these stories have been shared. And as you've been articulating these insights is that lots and lots of sellers are maybe stuck (laughs) in teams that don't have this, or they're maybe in between two leaders or managers, one of whom who's time strap but is good for a practice-based environment and another that's really performance heavy and wants to see all your activities and doesn't really care about the practice side. So maybe there's no answer to this, but for the individual seller who's maybe stuck in this environment where they don't have support from leadership to practice, what should they be doing? How Can they do this effectively by themselves or how should they go about practicing maybe if they don't have support from their leaders? So I've actually been in that situation before and I can tell you what I did. <laughs> you started a company to serve, to serve your needs. <laughs> you started a company to solve the problem. Easy peasy. <laughs> um, short of doing that, what I would recommend is kind of, you know, keep your eye out around your team for other sellers who seem to be growth-minded, who seem to be hungry and ambitious, who aren't just like settled in and coasting and arrogant and think they know everything, but those who really do want to improve themselves. And just message them and say, hey, I feel like I'm a little rough on our talk track about XYZ competitor. Do you want to, you know, hop in a Zoom room this Thursday and just kind of practice that together? And you can set up just peer-to-peer practice sessions. In fact, the practice lab was literally originally born. Its initial seed was just peer-to-peer practice sessions that I did at a company that I worked at before it ever got taken to the public world before Jordana you know, came in and helped us make a business out of it. Um, it that's what it was. It was just like myself and six colleagues who were all growth-minded being like, hey, let's just practice this shit together because our enablement team isn't really doing anything all that valuable for us. So let's do it ourselves. 
So I highly recommend, I mean, some cultures you can just do that and I've been telling you're doing it and it's fine. Some cultures you might want your manager to give you a stamp of approval to spend an hour a week on it. But one way or another, yeah, just reach out to your peers and y'all can do some practice stuff on your own. And then of course, and like, I'm so hesitant of like selling the practice lab on this show. But one of the things that I notice about folks coming into the community and they're from, from companies all across the B2B landscape is that many of them specifically are coming because they are not getting what they need from their team. So it's very possible and can sometimes be advantageous to be practicing with folks who are on your team and have the domain expertise and all of that. But something really, really rich and amazing can happen when you come together to practice with sellers from other industries who all share the same goals and values and curiosity around their own professional development and growth as well. That's so true because the way that I got pretty good at branding was by not talking with branding people in my own industry. <laughs> like the the way that I got much better at brand strategy was by talking to people in like the direct to commerce world or people selling into supply chains or like folks that didn't do just, well, I did mostly like manufacturing and tech companies. So like I had plenty of contacts in that industry, but it felt almost like that, that bubble of like, oh, we all sort of speak the same language. We approach problems similarly, maybe some differences. And then you go and talk to somebody from a different industry or somebody with very different experience and they start articulating things. And I'm like, oh, wow, you're so right. I never thought about that. And that, and I love what you use that word rich. It was very rich and rewarding as an experience to prep or practice uh, with other people who carry different experiences or, or come from different backgrounds than just folks who maybe, you know, speak 90% of the same language that I did. That's how the show started too, was us. I couldn't find anybody to like going on. It was before LinkedIn was so open for people just to go and jump on a Zoom call and like get to know people through the internet. That's how we started. Me and Morgan were in a class together. And it was our, we joke, we called it our public therapy because it was us just do, hashing things out and trying to figure it out because we couldn't find the answers and we didn't know who to ask. So that that's what we did is we just talked about it and kind of opened ourselves up to building in public. Man, those are scary days. It also kind of, guys, like underscores the fact that the sales skills are human skills that are completely industry agnostic. Like in my days when I was coaching sellers and teams, like I coached sellers who sold chemical sensors at meat processing plants and also sales teams who, uh, you know, helped galleries showcase their artist works to collectors online. Like it ran the total gamut, but I've always found a way in to help these sellers and, and to help sellers connect with the fact that like, it doesn't matter what you're selling. Like if you can like help your prospect feel seen, heard and understood and use your curiosity to ask great questions and make sure that you are tailoring the way you talk about what you do to what matters, what you've learned matters to your prospect. Like you can sell anything. And I think that that can be a really refreshing reminder. It is a really refreshing and very kind of empowering reminder for sellers or sometimes like first time thought that like selling is not different from being a person. And when you can bring yourself and who you are and all of the qualities that make you who you are in your life with your friends and your families and everybody else into your selling, like that's when things really connect for you and where your selling can take off. Where's this tea? I just want to <laughs> steepen it. Yeah, exactly. I want to steepen it a little bit longer. <laughs> One uh, further question that I have for you both 
comes back to time, actually. So obviously, practice can happen at any time. And creating environments for it is possible when managers want to make it happen. But is there any benefit to structuring it? Sort of, you know, lots of sellers go through ramp periods or an onboarding program. Sometimes those onboarding programs are like a day that's eight hours. And sometimes it's more like uh, we had uh, Christine Rogers on from Aspireship and she talked about, or was it Zoe Hartsfeld? I forget, but everboarding, you know, this idea that you're never done onboarding to the team. So we're going to continue training or continue practicing. So how do you think about like structuring practice for sellers over the course of their let's say, employment with a company or over the a greater length of time than just one or two sessions? You know, I'll just say from like my work with teams and being on teams that one of the things that I've found often disappointing is that like the practice, most of the practice, if it's happening at all, exists in onboarding and then it like never exists again. But it's something that can be really effortlessly and easily woven into any team meeting, like take the first 10 minutes and like run through your objection handling framework every week of, you know, a group call or, you know, use a platform like Meetsy, which is what we use in the practice lab, which pairs team members or humans together at a set time every week and just get an automated system where reps are meeting together to practice a specific skill. You know, it doesn't have to be a really heavy lift. The more practice is, that is happening, more frequently, even in short bursts, the more confidence, the more fun, the more skills, the better performance. So I would say to any leader who is watching this, you know, don't let the feeling of like, oh my God, this has to be such a heavy lift. This has to, you know, we have to rethink our entire enablement strategy to do any practice, stop you from literally just starting. Because some practice, even short bursts of it are better than no practice, right? And you have to start in order to be able to build and, and figure out how your team responds and what a more robust version might look like. Yeah, I like that. I think my answer is pretty pretty simple, just as much as you can manage, right? I don't. It would be hard to get to a point where it didn't pay off. At times in my career, I practiced for an hour a day and I don't feel like that was wasted time at all. So to, you know, do an hour a week as a team, I think is a really strong ROI. But again, to Georgiana's point, 15 minutes on the Monday morning stand up just to like, you know, get the rust of the weekend off is a great place to start. And then as far as, you know, cadence and pacing and stuff, again, do as much as you can. I think it's important to mix it up as well. I wouldn't want to see a team practicing the same stuff every Monday for eternity. Mix it up, right? You know, focus on discovery for a few weeks or months, and then focus on better demos and focus on objection handling and focus on cold calling, then focus on that new product that's being released in a few months. Like, cycle it through, right? You should be practicing a certain skill more than once because of course the mantra of, you know, don't practice it till you get it right, practice it till you can't get it wrong. There's a lot of truth to that mantra. So I think people should practice a certain skill more than one time, but I don't think it should be like every morning for the rest of eternity, we're going to practice this exact same exercise. I think there should be a, a cycling through every few months or every few weeks. Agreed. Yeah, for sure. That's really, really interesting. And even thinking about the, the sales teams we work with, how your what Jordana had said really hits home where it's like, oh yeah, on, onboarding is really the only place that practice, quote unquote, is encouraged or or like they set aside time. And then after that, it's like up to the individual manager and we'll see how this goes. And maybe that manager coaches them through stuff, but maybe it's always after the fact to what we were talking about earlier, where it's always the the entire call, the entire discovery call or the entire first call. And, oh, here are my notes. 
instead of proactively creating those spaces to practice each individual skill, how you're opening a call or, or how you're handling a specific objection. What you're saying, Morgan, just brings to mind the fact that like when you're onboarding is it seems to be the only time when everybody collectively agrees that like it's okay to be new, it's okay to make mistakes, it's okay to be in progress because you're new, so why wouldn't you be? But then all of a sudden there's like this moment where they're like, all right, you know everything you need to know, locked and loaded, development ceases, you know? And I think that's a really interesting place for us to just allow people to be in progress more, like literally all the time, even if they're more seasoned and tenured, right? So that they can keep developing. Ain't that true? I'm sort of at a loss of of words. So Nick, do you have any (laughs) further questions? (laughs) The one thing that stands out from this whole conversation is practicing being curious. Because you hear people talk about asking better questions, but nobody ever talks about like that thought process behind it and why it matters. And you think about the people that you love to talk to. Your friends are the most engaging, the most fun, the most interesting. Goes back to Dale Carnegie. They're the ones that you feel they lean in. They want to know. They're asking good questions because they're genuinely curious and they're they're not a means to an end. And I feel like my biggest takeaway from today is that because if we're doing good discovery, it's not a means to the end. You have to first lean in so that they feel heard. And it also just makes it enjoyable like you both were saying earlier, being human, right? So that was my big takeaway. Somehow... We're at the end of the hour. I don't understand how this is possible. This conversation has flown by. I need more of this tea, please. Uh, like, I just need to steepen this more. So I hope we can have you back sometime soon. So as always, where can people find you? So Jonathan and I do most of our talking about this stuff on LinkedIn. For anyone who is curious to jump in and try this practice thing on for size, we have a week, uh, a monthly free training. It's the third Wednesday of every month at noon Eastern called Wheel of Objections, which is exactly what it sounds like and is so frigging fun. And then we do have applications open now for the, the Q1 2023 cohort, which is 12 weeks of this stuff where we break down the entire consultative sales cycle into bite-sized pieces and practice and community. So you can go to the practice lab co to learn more about that. That's a great opportunity. I was about to say, everybody should take advantage of that one. <laughs> well, thank you both, Jordana, Jonathan, for joining us on this um, episode of the B2B Power Hour. Thanks, everybody, for coming. And Nick, do you want to close this out as per usual? It's 2022, almost 2023. It is no longer okay to suffer in silence. If you're struggling, you're not getting enough support from your manager. If you feel like you're tackling the world alone, Jump on LinkedIn, shoot any of us a message, go to YouTube, we go to our channel, anywhere you can get a hold of us. You don't have to buy anything. Just reach out and we'll make sure that you get the support you need. Thank you so much, everyone. We really appreciate you and you both. I will definitely be rewatching this. If anybody wants to join me with notes, let me know. But this has been amazing. Did you love today's episode? Subscribe now to have our three weekly episodes waiting for you. And if you really like our content, please leave a five-star review. But if you're not ready to give us a review, check out another episode and follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to win you over. See you next time. See you next time.